for a night out. Featuring a comfortable bar and extensive tapas menu, this is the perfect place for groups that want to get together for drinks and food. Join us at Asiento. Whoa there. What a tomato. Where did you find such a nice tomato? What a tomato? I know, I just said that. Where'd you get that fine heirloom? What a tomato. Look, man, this isn't a come on. Just tell me where you got that beautiful tomato. What a tomato. No, no, seriously. I actually want to eat a tomato. I love tomatoes. Where did you get that tomato? What a tomato. Dude, it's a fine, beautiful tomato. I want to eat one, too. I want one right now. I like to eat them like an apple with salt. Tell me, where'd you get the tomato? What a tomato. Are you high? Just tell me where I can find a tomato like that. What a tomato. Is this a metaphor? What a Tomato Produce Company in San Francisco. For all your wholesale produce needs, 2055 Jared Avenue. Hope your legs are looking sexy, because we're going to charm your pants off. Come to the Charm Offensive Comedy Show at Punchline San Francisco. It's a night of great jokes, magnetic personalities, featuring the Bay Area's most awarded comedians, plus national headliners. You'll laugh. You'll swoon. And when you regain your composure, you'll swipe right. Tuesday, March 7th. Doors at 7, show at 7.30 at 444 Battery Street in San Francisco's Financial District. Brought to you by Paco Romaine and Destiny's Moms Comedy. Our last show sold out, so get your tickets now at punchlinecomedyclub.com. Charm Offensive at Punchline Comedy San Francisco. Tuesday, March 7th. See you there, sexy. What's with the limp? I got hit by a car on my bike. This person just ran a red light. How are you going to work? You wait tables. I don't know. I'm terrified. I count on my tips and these hospital bills are confusing. The insurance adjusters just treat me like I'm a piece of paperwork. Man, you should go to johnstrausslaw.com. John Strauss is a great personal injury attorney. When I got hurt, he handled everything for me. He was on my side. And best of all, I didn't have to pay out of pocket. He got paid when I did. That's great because I cannot afford to pay out of pocket. Yeah, don't let them confuse you and trick you. They treat you like you're a business. It's not business. It's personal. Injury. JohnStraussLaw.com
Hello, I'm Chuck Weiss, and welcome to Close Encounters. I'll act as your guide while together we explore the twin phenomena of UFOs and alien abduction. In my last podcast, I described how my friend Harold is a genuine psychic who channels a chorus of invisible grays that sometimes answers our questions. Tonight, I'll tell you more of what they told us. But first, this message. What is CopWatch? CopWatch is a network of activist organizations in the United States and Canada that observe and document police activity while looking for signs of police misconduct and police brutality. Their database is a permanent searchable repository of complaints filed against police officers at copwatch.org. You can report an incident for permanent inclusion in their database at copwatch.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco.
Tonight I'm featuring the music of Cusco, a composer from Peru. That was titled Northeaster. In my last podcast, titled Two Exclusives, I described what the Greys had told Harold and me about the original alien hybrid program that was started in the 1940s, how it was conducted from an underground laboratory by Nazi paperclip scientists supervised by the Greys, and how the war between the Earth and the Flying Saucers started in July of 1947 when our military shot down a disc outside Roswell, New Mexico. Over the years, Harold's Invisible Chorus of Greys has conversed with us on many other topics as well. Here is some more of what they have told us. I was able to find out a little more about the Greys as a species. When I asked, Harold's voices confirmed my suspicion that they worked to perpetuate the mechanism of reincarnation. In my book and in Episode 6 of these Close Encounter podcasts, I explain how I came to this startling conclusion. The greys are interdimensionals in that they come from another dimension rather than being true extraterrestrials, beings from other planets like Earth. That being said, however, I will often use the term ETs when referring to any species not of this Earth, including the greys. It is the duty of the small greys to genetically create the physical bodies into which they place our souls about to be reborn. Our bodies are evidently custom-made. They compared it to creating a glove to fit a specific hand. The greys are sometimes said to use the word container when referring to the human body, but that's not true. They use the word shell instead. Container is a word that was most likely coined by Majestic so that they could determine the source of any report that used it. Those that refer to shells are considered genuine, while those that use the word container are known to originate from one of their own disinformation sources. I asked the greys directly, and they confirmed my suspicions that the human race is one of their creations. Actually, the greys are not the only ones to have had a hand in the making of humans. The three specific classifications of man, Occidental, Oriental, and Negroid, are actually mixtures of three different alien DNA strands with a species of primate here on Earth, most likely the bonobo chimpanzee. The missing link, for which anthropologists have long been looking, is in fact a gray. Although the greys admit that they are one of the three alien races that use their own DNA to create Homo sapiens sapien, modern man, they didn't specify the other two alien donor species. The greys are clung to their specific purpose and are awakened with full memory of their previous incarnations. Until recently, the greys have been an unemotional species, but they've recently created, through their own alien hybrid program, a new generation of themselves with the full base of human emotions. Harold and I found that his chorus will sometimes evade a question. While they have been surprisingly forthcoming on several subjects and have answered many specific questions that we've asked, Harold and I found that they will remain silent, a. when humans wouldn't understand the answer, their words, b. when the greys genuinely don't know the answer, or c. when they've been told to remain silent by still higher beings than themselves. There is a definite hierarchy in the heavens above us. At first, the answers we received to our questions often seemed ambiguous or even contradictory. Now, whenever Harold submits a question to his chorus, he has them vote so that we can have a better feel for the validity of any answer that they give. 
on any specific question, they'll report back to him on the percentage that voted yes or no, as well as those that declined to say anything at all. Now that half of Harold's chorus is made up of the new emotional gray hybrids that are much more sympathetic to us humans, a vote of 65% is considered to be almost unanimous. The tall grays are what have been called throughout the centuries guardian angels. They are assigned to a human rule for their lifetime and facilitate all the major life events that have been programmed to unfold, beginning obviously with the person's birth. Later on, at the outset of puberty, a follow-up visit is scheduled to monitor the hormonal changes taking place. Another major life event of concern to the greys comes when the individual is of an age when he or she can start a family. For abductee experiencers, the selection of a mate is seldom, if ever, left to chance. Originally, the Greek god Cupid shot his arrows not to create feelings of love between two people, but instead strong feelings of lust. The ancient pagan festivals that honored that horny little deity always ended in revelry and sex orgies. Cupid was, in fact, a grey. Creating feelings of heavy lust between two people whose DNA is considered to be a good match is their favorite method of bringing people together for procreation. For them, it's all about getting the next generation born, moving that DNA on down the line. Some of the family bloodlines that are monitored go back to the creation of civilization itself, to the first cities that man built after trading in his old nomadic existence for the food surpluses that an agricultural life could offer. Abraham, the patriarch of the Hebrews, was born in Ur, the first documented city ever built, and Jews as a people have long been of special interest to the Greys. People of Scottish or Celtic ancestry are also tracked because of their ancient lineage. It was recently discovered, for example, that the gene for red hair comes down to us from Neanderthal man, who we now know lived alongside modern man and mated with him before dying out as a parallel species. Indigenous people the world over are also candidates for long-term monitoring by the greys. The greys have been with mankind from the beginning of time and have made the human race to receive the souls that they recycle. That's why they know us so well. They created us and the world on which we live. Earth was seeded with life so that it could be used as a school where souls incarnate in order to gain the experience necessary to advance to higher orders of consciousness. There are many other planets that host sentient life, but none evidently with as large an emotional base as us humans. Harold was told that while other life forms may be capable of two or three emotional responses at best, they have nowhere near the broad range of feelings that we do. It is the wide range of emotions that we can draw on in any situation that allows us to have and exercise free choice. We have the ability to choose different ways to react, and that creates multiple possibilities. Souls that want to take the fast track to consciousness raising elect to incarnate here on Earth. But, as we all know, it's not easy. Earth is a tough school and recognized as such throughout the galaxy. Only the most determined to advance choose to be born here. Because of the importance that higher beings place on Earth and its inhabitants, no aliens are allowed to interfere with the affairs of men. There is a Star Trek-like prime directive in place, and it's just not permitted. They can visit to observe, but that's all. 
But what then to make of the stories of aliens seen working alongside humans in underground bases? Although I've never given such tales much credence, thinking that they were retellings of old disinformation pieces, I decided to ask Harold's voices nonetheless, and was surprised by the answer they gave. The aliens that are seen working with the military are clones, created using DNA taken from the bodies recovered from downed saucers. They are soulless creatures, not having been infused with one, and are raised by Majestic for its own purposes. Which leads me to restate what I've said before, but needs to be as widely understood as possible. There are no hostile aliens visiting Earth. Any stories to the contrary are either outright pieces of disinformation or hysterical interpretations of the available evidence. No less a personage than Dr. Werner von Braun, the man in charge of our space program up to and including Armstrong's historic walk on the moon, said so. Dr. Carol Rusin was von Braun's protege, and she has stated in several interviews that he told her numerous times that the military-industrial complex had a list of four counterfeit threats to the United States that would be used to support their funding. The first, the communist threat, was already in play at the time. The second was to be a terrorist threat, followed by an asteroid threat, and after that would come the threat of an alien invasion. While each of these threats was supposed to stimulate military spending, the alien threat was also meant to support their control of space. Von Braun had wanted her to work to ban space-based weapons so that international treaties against their use would be in place by the time the alien threat was scheduled to begin. According to Dr. Rusin, he told her on several occasions that human contact with many different species of extraterrestrials was already a reality, and that, quote, none of them are hostile. We're going to stop and take another break. When we come back, I'll tell you the incredible but true story of Charlie, my beautiful black-and-white kitten that was infused with the soul of a human. The House of Pride radio show, LGBT radio for everyone. Funky interviews, funky beats, talking drag queens, and much, much more. It's LGBT radio for everyone. Listen live every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio, LGBT radio for everyone. Celebrating the considerable contributions of the LGBT community in San Francisco and beyond. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Listen here for hot new local beats by LGBT artists and listen to live interviews. Tune in. Turn on every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m., House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities, Tweeka Turner and Pearl T.
That was White Buffalo by tonight's featured composer, Cusco. The story I'm about to tell you is true. To that I swear. It is so utterly fantastic, though, and opens up so many questions for those who might believe me that I'm sure most people won't. But the truth is the truth, and the universe is much stranger than anyone can imagine. I've always thought that every life form needs the companionship of one of its own. It was with that thought in mind that I went in search of a new friend for my cat, Piwacket. I've had Piwacket since he was but a few months old, after being rescued from underneath a parked car. It was hard at first, raising a feral kitten, but it wasn't until he was a full-grown adult and a little more civilized that I thought he was ready to live with another cat. I found Charlie at the local SPCA. She was a black-and-white female kitten with the biggest and fluffiest tail I have ever seen, so incredibly beautiful that I felt lucky that no one had already adopted her. There are colored pictures of Charlie and Piwacket in my book, Abducted by Aliens. I'll tell you how you can get a free copy later in the show. Charlie had a black marking on her upper lip that looked like a Charlie Chaplin mustache, thus her name. For those who might think it too masculine a name for a female, there was a popular perfume in the late 1970s called Charlie, which aired TV commercials featuring a leggy blonde striding down Fifth Avenue in New York City. In time, Piwack had finally accepted Charlie as part of the family, but Charlie would run and hide when anyone came to visit. She was always as skittish as she was beautiful. Lila has been a friend of mine now for over 35 years. She is also a psychic and channels her own invisible source of information. I've learned long ago to trust her perceptions. Shortly after I brought Charlie home, Lila came over for coffee and conversation. Her psychic impression of Charlie was that she had been surprised to wake up, quote, wearing a real fur coat. Lila didn't elaborate, so I didn't know what to make of that strange remark. Lila is very careful not to interpret the information she receives just to report it. She also said that she felt that Charlie ran and hid when anyone came to visit, not out of fear, but more because of embarrassment. Again, Lila didn't elaborate as to what Charlie might be embarrassed about. Later, however, Harold's voices explained in elaborate detail. Harold visits me every week for dinner and conversation. On one such visit, he interrupted me to say that his chorus of invisible greys had something to tell me. I stopped what I was doing and gave him my full attention. Usually, the greys only spoke through Harold in answer to our questions, but this time they were volunteering information. There was a pause as he listened to his voices. Finally, Harold said, Majestic is spying on you. I think I was a bit annoyed when I shot back, Of course they are. You already told me about the cameras and microphones in the apartment. No, they're saying that Majestic is spying on you through Charlie's eyes. Harold went on to explain that Charlie had been planted at the SPCA for me to adopt, and that Majestic was using her to psychically view through her eyes what she saw in my apartment. But that wasn't all that Harold's voices had to say. They went on to explain that Charlie and I had been together before, in another life. In a past incarnation, Charlie and I evidently had been engaged to be married when we were killed, as we lay in our bed, by a jealous lover. 
I was still trying to absorb this weird piece of information when it got even stranger. Our murderer, it seemed, later incarnated at this time as a woman and then joined Majestic when she grew up. When she saw my photo and read my file, she recognized me as the focus of her insane jealousy, which still consumed her. She had herself assigned as the leader of the surveillance team that harasses me, and then, using technology stolen from the greys, captured Charlie's human soul and put it into the body of a kitten for me to adopt at the SBCA. Wow, what a story. I didn't know whether to believe it or not until Lila later confirmed it to be true and added her own little detail that seemed to me even more incredible. This woman, Lila said, wasn't really a human at all. Her body housed a fire sprite from the fifth dimension. Let me explain. String theory, the current model being used by theoretical physicists, postulates 11 dimensions of reality, each made up of an infinite number of universes. We exist in the third dimension because we perceive in three dimensions. Elementals on our plane of existence, such as water nymphs, woodland spirits, and fire sprites, yes, they are real, are semi-conscious energies well beneath sentient beings like us humans. Those that exist in the fifth dimension, however, are formidable spirits especially to those who reside on planes of existence that are beneath them. Lila went on to say that this particular fire sprite wanted to experience life as a human. She was granted her wish but became overwhelmed, though, by all the emotions that came with being human, especially jealousy. That's what motivated her to kill Charlie and me in a past life and to continue her vengeance in this one by harassing me as a majestic agent. What an incredible story. But there it was, told and independently confirmed by two real psychics who each channel their own unseen sources of information. I was born in Missouri, known as the Show Me State. I always took that slogan to mean that one should be skeptical of new information, but if it's later proven to be true, it has to be incorporated into that person's worldview. Still, it took a while for me to accept what Harold and Lila had told me. I must admit I felt a little uneasy being tied karmically to my cat. In my next podcast, I'll describe how I was able, with the help of my closest friends, to rid myself of that vengeful fire sprite. If you've noticed, I've been talking about Charlie in the past tense. That's because she's no longer with me. Harold tells me that she was taken by Majestic. They came into my apartment when I was away to do something with her I don't know what. She ran in a panic, straight out my second-story window. She was immediately scooped up, Harold said, quote, by men dressed in suits. Lila later said that she also felt that Charlie jumped out the window. When she was a kitten, Charlie had a chip installed as part of the SPCA adoption process so that she could be returned to me if she ever got lost, but no one ever called. That was months ago. Harold now says that she's been reborn as a baby girl. Perhaps she died of her injuries from the fall. Or perhaps Majestic put her down, I don't know. The important thing is that her soul is now free to continue its journey through the reincarnation process as a human. There are other people in the UFO community who say that they communicate with invisible entities. 
One such person, abduction researcher Dolores Cannon, is the author of several large volumes, including The Custodians Beyond Abduction, which documents her recorded communications with ETs, many of which were in the presence of other UFO researchers. I was introduced to Dolores Cannon at a UFO convention a number of years ago and was in the audience when she told a room full of interested people that she had been instructed by her ET contacts to tell people to do two things. First, she was to say that all past life karma is forgiven. Instead, people are to concentrate on cleaning up their karma in this life. In other words, don't wait until tomorrow to say that you're sorry. Second, people should concentrate on eliminating fear from all aspects of their lives. These two items make up the life work upon which we're to concentrate, she said. If these directions come from the masters of reincarnation, as I believe they do, then we need to listen to them and to follow their instructions carefully. If all past life karma is forgiven, and it is now only the karma from this life that one need address, it would appear that there is a sense of urgency on the part of the ETs as relates to the spiritual development of human souls on Earth. Is time running out? It is said that Earth is a school and that we're all here to learn our karmic lessons. Is the school closing? Are we about to graduate? The second directive is really the hard one. While it may be difficult for most of us to say that we're sorry when we transgress, it takes real courage to admit to oneself, despite the false front that we put up for others to see, that deep down inside, we're really afraid. Fear is the big nut to crack. It is the root of all things negative and only serves to stifle our spiritual growth and limit our potential. The only positive thing that can be said about fear is that we become stronger by overcoming it. In future Close Encounter podcasts, I'll continue to pass along to my listeners anything that Harold and I may learn from his chorus of invisible greys. But right now, we're going to take a break, and when I come back, I'll pick up where I left off reading from my book, Abducted by Aliens. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio.
That was The Hunt by Cusco, a Peruvian composer and a virtuoso on the pipes. We've come to the part of these podcasts where I read from my book, Abducted by Aliens. If you prefer to read it yourself, it's available free as a PDF download at my website, abductedbyaliens.org. I can also be contacted at that address. In my last podcast, I described how I found evidence that I had been milked of my semen after taking an afternoon nap, how my daughter had gone back to sleeping with her mother again after trying unsuccessfully to sleep alone in her own room, and of my psychic experiences while attending the 1994 Whole Life Expo. I also described the 12 indicators of alien abduction as presented by Dr. Edith Fior at that expo in her seminar on the subject, and how I personally exhibited 11 of them. Picking up where I left off on page 58 of Abducted by Aliens, or How I Learned to Cope with High Strangeness, Government Harassment, and My Mother, A True Story, Copyright 2008. Sunday, April 24th. Reflecting upon my experiences of yesterday at the Whole Life Expo, I was struck by the types of people I saw attending the CE4-related events. Most of the crowd looked like your average convention-going public, mainly concerned with finding the right meeting room, getting good seats, looking around for friends, generally enjoying the experience. Then there were the ones who looked very serious, even worried, They would walk into the room totally absorbed in their thoughts, usually led by a friend or companion. They took notes, hanging on every word, but they definitely were not having a good time. These people were obviously personally involved in the CE4 experience. There were also the wannabes, people who enjoy the idea of being among the abducted. There are so many people who want to escape their lives of quiet desperation, as Thoreau described it, that they easily enter into fantasy worlds. If they can as easily exit from those worlds, their fantasies can be beneficial. Even if they become obsessive about it, if their fantasies revolve around something obviously fictitious like science fiction or mystery novels, then there's no harm done. Hey, I'm a Star Trek fan myself. However, when the situation is a real mystery, like the UFO phenomena, then the line between reality and fantasy becomes too thin for many people to distinguish. While they can't be a Luke Skywalker or Captain Kirk, they can fantasize about being one of the in-crowd of people who have actually experienced a close encounter with a UFO or an extraterrestrial. These people don't know when they're well off and should be careful of what they wish for. To the delight of the intelligence community, which has worked long and hard to cover up anything having to do with UFOs, they only serve to muddle the waters. I'm sure that there were many silent cameras clicking away yesterday during the two CE4-related events. It goes without saying that if the government is interested in real UFO activity, then they are also interested in those people who have real contact with their occupants. Since the Roswell incident in 1947, our government has been willing to ruin the reputation of many professional observers, such as airline pilots, police officers, etc., by circulating false reports of their drunkenness or mental instability. It's only prudent to assume that it's ready to use such tactics to discredit abductees as well. The stakes are even higher today as more and more people are beginning to talk about their contact experiences. Governments around the world are doing everything possible to prevent human contact with extraterrestrials. 
Such contact only serves to undermine the military-industrial complex which really runs this planet. Who will be willing to die for God and country anymore when it becomes obvious that not only are we not alone in the universe, but that the neighbors are here knocking at our door? Late Evening The sexual genetic nature of this phenomenon may suggest why the number of cases involving women over 50 is reported to be so much less for women who are younger. And it seems that alien abductions are all but unknown for women over 60. As a man, however, I have many more years of sperm production ahead of me. Therefore, I can probably expect that my visits will continue for many years to come. Arian suggested a vasectomy as a final answer to my problem. If I no longer have what they want, then there would be no need to come and take me in the night. I know that she's right, and, considering all the anxiety that this is causing me, it is probably not an unreasonable course of action to at least consider. But I must say that the idea of a vasectomy has always repelled me. I know that I don't want to sire any more children. The future is going to get pretty unpleasant for most of humanity, starting in Catherine's lifetime. The greenhouse effect, toxic waste, the thinning of the ozone layer, overpopulation, and diminishing natural resources will all combine to lessen the expectations of every creature on Earth, except perhaps the cockroach. Maybe my manhood is so insecure that subconsciously a vasectomy seems like castration. Or maybe subconsciously I know that a vasectomy will help mess up some intergalactic genetic experiment that has some profound importance for all the races of beings involved, including us. Who knows? I just know that I don't want one. And of course, it wouldn't do anything to help Catherine. I can't ask her to have a hysterectomy as a cure for her night terrors. If I remain involved in this, however, there is always the chance I can help her in some way. Monday, April 25th. Included at the end of the book Communion is a statement from Donald D. Klein, M.D., attesting that he had examined Whitley Strieber and found that he was not suffering from a psychosis or any other mental disorder, and that Strieber had made an honest attempt while under hypnosis to describe what he had remembered. The statement ends with this observation, quote, he appears to me to have adapted very well to life at a high level of uncertainty, quote. I wish I could. There is a short film titled Powers of Ten, which, in order to show the power of geometric progression, starts with a close-up of an object one meter square and then moves the camera back in a series of photos, each of which is ten times further away than the one before. It isn't long before the camera's perspective is deep in space. By the time the camera zooms past the planets and leaves our solar system, the viewer begins to feel pretty insignificant. The film then reverses the process and zooms from outside our galaxy back through the solar system to finally come home again. When the Earth comes back into view, viewers feel a sense of relief at having found their way home from such a long and disorienting distance. I've been snatched away from everyday reality so fast, and the disorientation that I feel as a result is so profound that I'm not sure that I can ever find my way home again. Is this what they mean by a paradigm shift? I'm hopeful that with hypnotherapy I will eventually be able to sleep comfortably again, even if these nighttime visits continue. It's not the visits themselves that I dread. In fact, I often physically feel much better afterwards. It's the implications of these visits that boggle my mind.
I watched an episode of In Search Of on television today. It was about Michael Rockefeller, the son of the former governor of New York. He had been an amateur anthropologist and had been trying to document the culture of a Stone Age tribe in New Guinea when he died. This tribe was already losing faith in their old ways and customs. Their sense of identity was evaporating fast as they began to want more and more of what Western civilization has to offer. When a man finds out that in a larger universe he's actually a mouse, what happens to his sense of identity? Eventually my body will become used to the research scientist plucking it from its cage to poke and probe. I'm uncertain, however, as to how to react to this new reality that treats me personally in such an impersonal manner. Tuesday, April 26th. This is strange. I want to get this down on paper while this is still fresh in my mind and before my sleeping medication takes effect. It's 11.15 p.m., and my dear friend Dick Mayfield is napping on my couch in the living room while I prepare for bed myself. I've known Dick for over 20 years. I rented a room from him back in 1972 while I went to college on the GI Bill, and we've been good friends ever since. Dick has been in poor health for years. In 1980, his doctor told him that he had only six months to live due to an enlarged heart. Although he has outlived that doctor and two others, his health still hasn't improved 14 years later. In addition to his heart problems, two years ago he was diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer. Again, the medical establishment gave him but a few months to live. Dick declined any radiation treatments or chemotherapy, preferring to die if need be with dignity rather than be slowly consumed by the very therapies meant to save his life. Shortly after Dick made that decision and was prepared emotionally to meet his end, the tumor spontaneously arrested itself. It had all the doctors scratching their heads. This afternoon I received a short phone call from Dick. With desperation in his voice, he asked me if he could spend the night on my couch. Of course I said he could, and he said that he would come right over. As soon as I hung up the phone, my mother called. She has maintained her own close relationship with Dick over the years, his age being much closer to hers than mine. She asked me if Dick had called me yet. He evidently had called her first. When I replied that he had, she explained that he was close to suicide and that he needed to be with someone tonight. Mother lives with her boyfriend, and Dick probably felt uncomfortable asking to stay with them. I assured Mother that I would take good care of Dick, and we ended our conversation. When Dick arrived, he told me that, although he can't explain why, he gets extremely anxious at night and sometimes he just doesn't want to be alone. I offered him my sofa bed, but he said that he hasn't slept lying down for more than six years since his nighttime anxiety attacks first began. He preferred instead to sleep sitting up on the couch. Upon questioning, he also revealed that he hadn't had more than two or three hours of uninterrupted sleep for equally as long. He can usually go back to sleep again, but his nighttime rest is always disturbed. He admitted that he generally sleeps better during the day. It seems that he also suffers from recurring bouts of depression, which, when it first develops, can be so strong as to be paralyzing. The depression diminishes over time, but always returns again with renewed intensity. These symptoms sound so familiar. Can it be that my good friend is also an abductee? He suffers from night terrors, has sleep disorders, and has a documented medical spontaneous healing. 
I wish I could question him more closely to see how many more of Edith Fiore's CE4 indicators he's experienced, but Dick is a very private person and I don't want to be too intrusive. Dick was quite concerned as he relayed all of this to me and seemed to be at his wit's end. I reassured him that, in fact, I too suffer from the same sleep disorders. His eyes widened in amazement as I described my own patterns of depression, anxiety attacks, and nighttime insomnia. When I had finished, he seemed relieved to find in my story confirmations of his own unusual condition. I further explained that although our symptoms are unusual, we are not alone in this, and that it has been estimated that up to 2% of the general population suffer from the same disrupted sleep patterns and cycles of depression. It's something of a shock to find that I have a close friend who might be a fellow abductee. I wonder how many of my friends share these experiences. For those who are involved in this phenomena, do birds of a feather flock together? I don't know. A researcher later confirmed to me that abductee experiencers do seem to unknowingly gravitate toward each other. In 1992, Robert Bigelow commissioned a survey by the Roper Organization to determine how many people share the most common indicators of alien abduction. The results suggested that 7 million Americans, 2% of the population, might be involved in the phenomenon. Note, if you Google it, be sure to indicate the year. Roper did another, smaller internet survey in 1999, but the 1992 polling was done in face-to-face -face interviews in almost 6,000 homes across the country, a feat that couldn't be duplicated today. Thursday, May 12th. I saw Dr. Irving Katz today. He's an elderly Jewish urologist who has many years' experience performing circumcisions. My primary doctor referred me to him in an attempt to determine if there might be a medical explanation for the scar on the underside of my penis. He described it as an extension of the medium raphe, the dividing line between the left and right halves of the scrotum. Although it is rare, he said that it sometimes extends from the scrotum sac up the underside of the penal shaft. It would seem that mine is particularly rare in that the extension is irregular in width and color and is not in a straight line at all. Although Dr. Katz's examination should put this part of the mystery to rest, I'm not so sure. From the questions he asked and didn't ask, and the tone of his voice, I got the impression that he might have consulted with my primary doctor before meeting with me today. This is quite possible, as their offices are in the same medical building, in fact, right next door to each other, that only dawned on me today when I showed up for my appointment. If, in fact, my primary doctor did share what he had read in my journal with Dr. Katz, then Dr. Katz might have felt that his first duty to me was to put my mind at rest concerning the scar on my penis. If his patient couldn't remember having had major surgery in that area of the body and believed himself to be abducted by aliens, even if it did look like a surgical scar, it would be understandable that he would not want to add to my anxiety by admitting that he didn't have any other explanation. From the moment he walked into the examinating room, he seemed determined to put me at ease, acting as if my questions were commonplace. The doctor seemed genuinely puzzled, however, when he examined me. It seemed to be a genuine mystery to him, as, one by one, he had to discard possible explanations for what he saw. First, Peyronie's disease, then sebaceous cysts, and finally, penile warts. 
After determining that I had none of these, he finally settled on a rare variation of the medium raffe as the only possible explanation. Maybe I'll get another opinion sometime when I can afford to pay for the examination myself and not go through my health plan's referral process. I'll need to be more forthcoming about my suspicions, though, if I'm ever to get a doctor to admit that he doesn't have an explanation. I have my first hypnotherapy appointment tomorrow. Even after waiting so long for this, I'm nervous as hell. Friday, May 13th. I was hypnotized for the first time in my life today. What an experience. When I arrived for my appointment with Mr. Van Alt, I was a little anxious, but he quickly put me at ease. Although he is well over six feet tall, he projects a gentle and warm personality that communicates a genuine concern for his clients. I had mailed him a copy of my journal so that he would be well acquainted with my case when we met. I found that this saves a lot of effort when I want to tell my story to someone for the first time. After introductions and a cup of his hot coffee, Mr. Alt suggested that we get down to business. I brought a blank cassette tape and tape recorder with me and asked him to document our session. After we set up the equipment and tested recording, I laid down on his workbench, a wooden construct which stands waist-high off the floor. It was comfortable enough. Mr. Alt then asked me to stare up at the ceiling where he had taped a card just inside my field of vision. On the card was written the word peace, and, after a minute or so of staring at it, my eyes were feeding little rivers of tears that ran down the sides of my face to the back of my neck. This technique evidently puts the subject into a low hypnotic state, making it that much easier for the hypnotherapist to deepen the translator. Mr. Alt took me through a relaxation exercise that left my arms and legs feeling as if they were made of lead. My body seemed much heavier than usual, and I wondered if I would be able to move if I tried. But I didn't try. I didn't want to do anything that might upset the process. My purpose was to go into as deep a trance as possible, and I followed Mr. Alt's every suggestion in that regard. He then asked me to visualize a door, beyond which was a special room where I would be safe and secure. I couldn't seem to picture a room. The only thing I was able to see beyond the door was the color blue. At any rate, this blue space served as a place of safe refuge. An attempt to regress me to the night of April 15th didn't get very far. That was the night Catherine stayed overnight with me, and I felt at the time that we had been taken. I started feeling anxious and couldn't bring up any images from that evening. Mr. Alt then asked me to pick any other time I wanted to investigate and go there instead. I chose my grandparents' home in Oklahoma when I was a boy. At first, I had trouble picturing the interior of the house. I kept seeing the color blue. Slowly, after what seemed like several minutes, I saw the eyes. Big, black, almond-shaped eyes would rise out of the blue and stare at me briefly before fading away. The blue color did disappear eventually to reveal the living room in Oklahoma, where I had spent many of my happier childhood moments. I was viewing the scene as if I was detached from it, looking from up high and over someone's shoulder when a group of little beings with big, dark eyes swarmed through the front door and into the room. There were grown-ups there, Happy, Billy, and my mother, trying to stand between them and me but to no avail. Within a second or two, we were completely surrounded by these little people. The scene quickly faded to blue. After a while, I could see the eyes again. Slowly, complete faces began to appear. Several of them were bent over, staring down at me. 
If I tried to stare back to get a better look at the details of their features, the image would fade away again, leaving just the blue background color. However, I found that if I closed my eyes tightly, the image would return and I could get another quick glimpse. When I looked up into their faces, I began to get emotional. It felt as if they could look right through me. I felt helpless and began to cry. At this point, Mr. Alt asked me if I had found out what I wanted to know. I replied that I wasn't sure, that I had conscious memories of some sort of commotion at the front door, and that the hypnotherapy had only given me glimpses of faces. At this point, Mr. Alt ended the session and brought me up out of the trance. Although during much of the session I wondered if I was in fact hypnotized, the way that I felt afterwards left me no doubt. As I opened my eyes and started to move, my body was very slow to respond. My mind felt spaced out like I was on some kind of hallucinogenic drug. Even my visual sense was distorted. I felt detached from what I was seeing, as if I was looking through the eyes of someone else or watching a movie. These effects soon dissipated, leaving me feeling fully rested and alert. Mr. Alt explained that this was the way people typically reported feeling after hypnosis. I asked if there was any way to tell if the images I reported were in fact long-forgotten memories or the result of what I had recently read on the subject. In other words, was this real or just my imagination? He replied that in those cases of regressive hypnosis where the subject was reporting false memories, the images were almost never accompanied by any extreme emotion. The fact that I had gotten agitated and even started crying was a good indication to him that something real was being re-experienced. Now that I've confirmed this is actually happening, I can still scarcely believe it. It seems too fantastic to be true. I've known deep down in my gut that it was true, but there is still a part of me that is going to have trouble believing it. Wow. I have another session with Mr. Alt's schedule for next Friday. I'm going to stop here and take one more break. When I come back, I'll tell you about what I have scheduled for my next podcast.
again another number by Cusco, this one titled Andes. Close Encounters is produced at Mutiny Radio, located at 21st Street and Florida in San Francisco. Besides hosting a wide variety of podcasts each week, Mutiny Radio serves the community as a venue for a host of entertainment and educational programs. Visit the website at mutinyradio.fm for a complete list of what's happening. While you're there, check out the other programs as well. There's no registration process, and you get free access to dozens of weekly podcasts, from comedy to news analysis to far-out stuff like Close Encounters with Chuck Weiss. It's all there at mutinyradio.fm. We also have a 40-seat performance space available for rent. So if you're a performer looking for a really cheap place to put on a show, contact our station director, Pam Benjamin, at Pam Sedai, that's P-A-M-S-E-D-A-I, all one word, at hotmail.com. That about wraps it up for this edition of Close Encounters. If you'd like to comment about what you've heard, you can contact me through my website at abductedbyaliens.org. The next time we meet, I'll tell you about an aspect of the UFO phenomena that the ETs share with Majestic, the practice of real magic, the subject of which I'm something of an expert. Until then, look to the skies.
band They're making money They're making plans Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today is April 29th, 2016. That was Prince with Fury. And I like the idea of continuing to play Prince for as long as possible. The Current, which is a wonderful radio station out of Minneapolis, they played all of Prince's catalog in alphabetical order, which was great um, because various parts uh, during those two days when I would listen in, get to hear a chunk of songs and then listen in later on in the day and Prince is, is still playing and it's awesome to hear songs I'd never heard before as well as those I was familiar with and that was just really awesome and also just a great way of bonding with people since Prince clearly touched and influenced so many folks and outside Green Apple Books here in San Francisco they have dedicated a bench to Prince they've painted it purple and I very much look forward to checking it out so again, celebrating the life and all of the art that, that Prince created and shared with us and feeling very fortunate that we are around to experience that. Um, it's, it's San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know where else I would be. I guess I could be somewhere else, but that's where we are broadcasting from. We're here in the Mission on 21st in Florida. Yesterday was the 11th annual Poems Under the Dome at City Hall, which I had the privilege of reading at, and that was very cool. And uh, it was my first time there. I'd been to City Hall before, but my first time at Poems Under the Dome. And uh, Supervisor John Avalos had folks in his office ahead of time, which was really cool for this little 
not quite party, but a bit of like a celebration, which was awesome. And they had, you know, some drinks and some food and folks were there gathered, maybe 30 of us. And just to have his office open to people was really cool. And they had a couple folks perform some music, a couple people performed poetry and John Avalos wrote a poem, uh, read a poem. And I thought that was really very cool because, and it felt very, I guess what San Francisco is supposed to be or was and to, to kind of experience that, to be in this room with some people I knew, some people I didn't, um, in city hall, uh, to be kind of celebrating and to feel very unified, I thought was really awesome. That was really cool. And the poetry reading itself was, was pretty rad. And it's great just to hear so many people speak and to, to share their words and some really great, uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily a performance. I mean, it was a performance. There's a, there's a great mic out in Oakland, uh, the Queer Open mic on Tuesdays at Perch. And um, they... Uh, refer to the performances uh, they don't even call them performances they're more called love shares which I think is awesome and it also puts like less pressure on people and also just the, the recognition that when people come up to the mic whatever they're doing whether it be comedy or music or poetry or spoken word or dance or video whatever someone wants to share just even ideas the idea that it's a love share and that people are sharing from their heart and uh, just feeling very yeah grateful that those places and spaces exist and how wonderful it would be if there are more of them. I often feel that way. There was a map, which was like the mission arts project. And they had a, this is maybe a month ago. I can't keep track of time anymore. I really can't. I have no idea when things happen. I have some idea. Um, part of it, I think living in the Bay area where the seasons don't really change. So it's like, what time of year is it? I don't know. It's not snowing. It hasn't ever snowed really. It's not super hot. I don't know what time of year it is. That's tricky. So that, I think that's part of it. And then also uh, not necessarily working a Monday through Friday, nine to five, uh, and just working different days and different hours, um, not necessarily on, the, on a certain time clock. So I sometimes forget when things happen. Anyway, there was a, I wanna say maybe a month ago, probably a little bit sooner than that, outside the Mission Library, they had uh, an open mic, which is really cool, just out on the sidewalk. And I really love when there are performances outside because that means that people who are just walking by who aren't even there with the intention of listening or checking it out end up hearing it. And I think just the, the serendipitous, serendipitousness of that is really cool. And how awesome if that would be if there were more of them around, more mics and more places for people to share. So I think that's great. I'm in good a good mood today, which is great. And uh, I'm not gonna go into it too much because why? why ruin the mystery, I guess. Um, of course, the, there have been still, I have been feeling very frustrated and triggered by all of the, the anti-LGBT legislation that's been going on across the country, especially within North Carolina. And Michael Jordan has actually stepped up against Pat McCrory, uh, which is good. Um, I, I have, com I mean, my feelings about Michael Jordan, I grew up, I was a kid in the Chicago suburbs and was a diehard Bulls fan. And then I learned uh, recently, within the last few years, again, time, I don't know, that he has invested in, in private prisons, and that makes me super sad. Um, however, I was very grateful to hear that he is stepping up to Pat McCrory about the HB2 bill, which is ridiculous. And a lot of folks have been stepping up, which is great. That's one positive thing that has come from these idiot. I mean, just these asinine laws and people in power who want to create laws and pass legislation that end up harming people who are oftentimes the ones who are most uh, oppressed and uh, hurt. 
and it's I've had my own experiences of being asked to leave bathrooms. I've had it happen with to friends I've been with, and I've heard about it happen to a lot of people I know. And it's not fun. It's not cute. It's really just it's just a terrible thing. So for folks who haven't experienced it, imagine you're in a public place, you're at an establishment, you're a customer, you're giving them money, and you need to use the bathroom, and people imagine like someone following you into I was following into a stall once which is really messed up and this was pre before I transitioned this is uh, someone followed me into the stall and I had to be like no I belong here and I kind of just gave them hell and I'm glad I did but it was not fun and that of course is something that's very minor compared to what so many people go through people are attacked people have been beaten up um, just for going into the bathroom and it's something that's so simple that it just kind of boggles my mind. There was a good meme I saw this morning that I almost shared. I, I hesitate to share things, even though, even though I've, even if I like them a lot on Facebook, I have a really weird thing with what I decide to share, what I don't decide to share, and then I share things and regret it. Anyway, there was a, there was a, a meme that was pretty much like, uh, it was a picture of, you can see a face, a woman's face kind of peering out under a bathroom stall that was like, let me see if you have a penis or a vagina so I can make sure that you don't make me feel uncomfortable. And that's pretty much what it is. It's, again, it's putting uh, cis people's uh, comfort, their idea of comfort at the expense of uh, trans folks or gender nonconforming or however folks want to be, not want to be labeled, but are labeled because that's unfortunately the only language that we have for now until things change and evolve a bit. It's putting those other people's, their idea of what comfort is, even though it's based on a lot of propaganda and fear and untruths. And again, there have been more U.S. senators who have been arrested for sexual misconduct in bathrooms than trans people. So they're the, I mean, and of course I don't necessarily believe in prisons and jails, but if we're going to put people in jail, it should be these uh, Congress people who are really problematic and killer cops. Uh, so while we, have the, while we have the jails up for, for sure, might as well at least put in the people who deserve to be there. So I feel conflicted about that, because again, I'd like to live in a world without prisons at all. However, it's my, my main, one of my main arguments against it is that there are folks who are innocent who are in there. There are folks in there for nonviolent offenses, and I'll get to a story about that, which is pretty cool. Uh, well, no, that sounded wrong, but there's there, there, it's the idea of like getting people out of prison who are in there for nonviolent offenses, who shouldn't be in there at all. And then there are people who are running the country running things, doing things, and they're not in jail at all. Dick Cheney's not in jail, so if he's not in jail, if Karl Rove isn't in jail, and someone who, you know, smoked a joint once is, then uh, the whole, that whole institution is flawed, putting it mildly. So I guess that will lead into the, the first story, which I'll, I will pull up here. And there's a few, I, I always like to have, always, always is a strong word, I often like to have positive stories because this show depresses the hell out of me. I'm not going to lie. I've been doing this now for two and a half years. It's a really depressing show to read the news, to force myself to read it, um, to speak it aloud and recognize what's happening. Uh, it depresses me. I'm not going to say it doesn't. And I'm also not necessarily going to stop doing it because I think there's a certain... Uh, something good can happen with being uncomfortable is I'd rather... I could have my head in the sand and not, and not you know know what's happening, or I can face it as best I can and recognize what's happening, share it, educate myself, and then at least have some idea of what's happening. So I feel like that's that's a positive thing. 
So the story I'm going to get to, when I find it, if I find it, well, it'll, it'll come up at some point. We're pretty casual here. And, um, oh, well, let's start with this one instead, because this is, this is also related, and I found it first. The story I was going to get to, which I will get to, is that Oregon, which has now legalized marijuana, they are looking to uh, uh, undo the sentencing for folks who are in prison for for Oregon. I'm going to start off with that one instead of this other guy getting, because there's uh, Dennis Hastert, who is like this, yeah, I'll start off with him. Uh, Dennis Hastert, sentenced to 15 months and apologizes for sex abuse. So here's like this dude, he's not, oh God, I can't even, I'm not even, I'm going to be very brief. <sighs> I think the older I get, the more I realize what I like and what I don't like and what really offends me. And the thing that probably offends me the most are people in positions of power who are hypocrites, who cause a lot of harm. And, you know, I get we're, we're all human, we're all imperfect. However, when you have the ability to pass laws that damage families and tear people apart and you're a hypocrite about it and you do a lot of evil things, that's like, I don't like the idea of having an enemy but that is what makes my blood boil the most. That and like war profiteers and people who profit off of causing other people harm. That's, I think, the worst thing in the world. That goes beyond just making a mistake as we all, we're all human, we all make mistakes. However, continually doing really hurtful, heinous behavior, and then as well as somehow being a representative for the people is, uh, uh, that's like just goes above and beyond. So I'll read the first, this is from the New York Times, which is really super mainstream and very right-leaning for me, but it's about this D-bag going to jail. So we'll just start off with that. Uh, so Jay Dennis Hastert, once among the nation's most powerful politicians, was sentenced on Wednesday to 15 months in prison for illegally structuring bank transactions in an effort to cover up his sexual abuse of young members of a wrestling team he coached decades ago. In a hearing that was by turns harrowing and revelatory, Mr. Hastert publicly admitted for the first time to abusing his athletes, was confronted in emotional address by one of the former wrestlers and the sister of another, and faced a long, scathing rebuke from the judge. Mr. Hastert, 74, who made an unlikely rise from a beloved small-town wrestling coach in Illinois to Speaker of the House in Washington, sat slouched in a wheelchair in a federal courtroom here as a judge announced that he was rejecting pleas for probation from Mr. Hastert's lawyers, as well as prosecutors' endorsement of a shorter prison stay. While the sentencing hearing was technically about a violation of banking rules and regulations, the proceedings focused squarely on the underlying reason for Mr. Hastert's puzzling bank withdrawals, his abuse of young wrestlers who had viewed him as a role model. The defendant is a serial child molester. By the way, trigger warning, I should do this before the show because the news is like super triggering all the time. Uh, so a bit late for that, but here we go. The defendant is a serial child molester, said Judge Thomas M. Durkin of Federal District Court as Mr. Hastert sat impassively, often staring downward, hands crossed on his, on his lap. He added, some actions can obliterate a lifetime of good works. Nothing is more stunning than having serial child molester and speaker of the house in the same sentence. And that's, that's America. Mr. Hastert uh, was not charged with sexual abuse because statutes of limitation for acts in the 1960s and 70s have run out. The judge noted pointedly that punishment for such a conviction would have been far worse. Illegally structuring bank transactions to keep such abuse secret, the felony count to which Mr. Hastert pleaded guilty carried a maximum sentence of five years in prison. Mr. Hastert, whose date to report to prison has yet to be set, was ordered to pay $250,000 in fines, never to contact his victims, and to receive sex offender treatment. If there is a public shaming of the defendant because of the conduct he's engaged in, so be it, Judge Durkin said. 
Mr. Hastert has had a series of illnesses since last year, including a stroke, a bloodstream infection, and a spinal infection, factors his lawyers and family members argue to be taken into account in the sentencing. They urge the judge to consider the entire arc of his life and career, including his years of public service. As Mr. Hastert prepared to address the judge, he used a walker to rise to his feet, but his voice was firm and clear. I'm not going to quote him. This is me, Roman Reimer. I'm not going to read what this... I need to find new words I find that aren't offensive, because I, I don't like calling people dicks, because that's an insult to dicks. And D-bags, I don't know. It seems somehow... Eh. Anyway, not a good human being. I And that's also a qualifier. However, I don't... This guy... No. No, 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 no. Um... So I'll just get to the, the end of the article here and see if we can... Uh, all right. So uh, after payments began around 2010, the federal authorities took notice of large unexplained withdrawals Mr. Hastert was making from his bank. Uh, when told that large withdrawals had to be reported, Mr. Hastert began drawing smaller sums, prosecutors say, to avoid notice. The wrestler sued Mr. Hastert this week, saying he still owed him $1.8 million of their agreed-to settlement. Before the hearing, a long list of supporters from Mr. Hastert's wife, Jean, to Tom DeLay, oh, I remember him, the former House Majority Leader, had sent letters to Judge Durkin. He doesn't deserve what he's going through, Mr. DeLay wrote. But for nearly 45 minutes on Wednesday, Judge Durkin held forth in a passionate, often contemptuous tone with little interruption. He said that Mr. Hastert had manipulated the FBI and the United States Attorney's Office, diverted their investigation, and knowingly tried to set up individual A actions that were intentional, thought out, and desperate. The judge spoke broadly about child sexual abuse and the lifelong damage it inflicts. Can you imagine the whispers, the finger pointing, the sideways glances if you're a 14-year-old boy and you accuse the town hero of molesting you, he said? He dismissed the defense's arguments that Mr. Hastert was too old, frail, or ill to be properly taken care of in federal prison. And he ended with a blunt synopsis. This is a horrible case, a horrible set of circumstances, horrible for the defendant, horrible for the victims, horrible for our country, he said. I hope I never have to see a case like this again. Court adjourned. Oof. So again, you can read the full article uh, in the New York Times. Again, not a paper necessarily fully I'm on board with, um, but each reporter has their own view. So, And uh, the, uh, the authors of this article was uh, Monica Davey, Julie Boseman, and Mitch Smith, and this came out yesterday. So, yeah, again, that's kind of a theme of the show with people in positions of power doing really terrible things. And the, also the thing with, like, paying people off, it's, it's money doesn't bring back people who have been hurt or murdered. And I, it's, it's kind of disgusting to live in a, in a country where uh, that is something that people uh, can turn to. Um, so I'm looking now, right now for the article uh, about Oregon. So that might take some time as, as we get there. But I feel like it's kind of in the theme with uh, just the, the theme of like who gets sent to prison and who doesn't. And again, here's this guy who people in positions of power, oftentimes people don't stand up to them and they can get away with a lot, including passing really bad legislation. So I think that's uh, that's pretty pretty sad but it's good that at least he's now being held accountable for his actions even though it's too little and too late in in my opinion so what else has been has been happening here here we go we found it that's great good things happening all the time so this is from the united media publishing 
and it's you can find it at unitedmediapublishing.com. Oregon will pay reparations to individuals formerly convicted of marijuana-related crimes. Oh, this is from last year, but that's still good. So this is written by Priscilla Mason. Um, state officials have announced that starting July 15th of last year, Oregon will begin issuing reparations payments to those previously convicted of marijuana-related crimes within the past decade. The decision comes hot on the heels of the marijuana legalization measure, which takes effect July 1st throughout Oregon. Carol Shapiro is the newly appointed coordinator for the Oregon Department of Marijuana Reparations, and he elaborated on how the system will work to get those affected by previous laws back on their feet. These were essentially incidents that should have never even been tried as crimes to begin with. Thousands of people have paid dearly over the years for laws which have criminalized a substance that is basically less dangerous than any over-the-counter painkiller. Individuals who have served prison time for drug offenses involving marijuana within the last 10 years will automatically be eligible for a refund of any fines and fees incurred as a result of, these conv of those convictions, as well as compensation for pain and suffering endured from being incarcerated. These parties will also have their records automatically expunged. We are hoping that these actions will correct the injustices previously inflicted upon innocent citizens and help them go on with their lives. This news comes as a bittersweet relief to those who have faced serious consequences within the last 10 years for their involvement in marijuana-growing operations. People such as Portland native Marcus Ford, who spent two years in prison in 1999 after his marijuana-growing operation was discovered by police. What can, I, what can I say? It's not like I'm going to get those years of my life back or get the job back that I lost at the time. I don't think the federal government is innocuous. Is, oh wait, I don't, I don't think that the federal government is aware of the scope of what people have to deal with when they are sent to jail for things as innocuous as marijuana. I didn't see my kids for two years. I spent an additional four years on probation. It literally made my life hell and caused my family so much stress and anguish. I am glad they are trying to make up for it, but basically, no amount of money is going to replenish what I lost when I got locked up for growing. It's a relief that they understand the error of their ways now, but keep in mind that a lot of us have paid the ultimate price in this pointless war. Oof. So, yeah, I've got nothing to, to add to that. Um, I'm going to play some music. We'll be taking a break from Prince, but we'll be back with some more Prince before the end of the show for sure. I went to this punk rock karaoke thing uh, again. What's time? It was in the, within the last week, I think it's safe to say, and I heard some new songs I hadn't heard before, and I like I dig songs with a political message. So here's one by a band called Refused called New Noise. And then we'll be back uh, with some more stories.
Refused. We've out here for six uh, days. You know, we haven't went home. We haven't done. And uh, it's. Uh, I'm surprised I don't play more angry music on the show because I feel like that kind of goes in line with uh, the the spirit and the energy. And 
listening to the lyrics, it's pretty much the idea is a lot of what we're told to like listen to and just go along with is old and old in the way not just old in the way that it's not really constructive and needs to be challenged and we need to create new ways of being. So uh, I, I totally dig that. So next up, um, there's been the hunger strike, which has been happening now for almost a week outside the Mission Police Station. I encourage folks to go by and check out and support. And this is on Valencia and 17th Street. Folks have been camped out there now for quite a while. And here are some interviews with folks who have been uh, doing the hunger strike outside of the station. We've slept out here for six days. So we haven't went home, we haven't done a part-time hunger strike. We've slept out here. We're on 17th in Valencia, uh, the Mission, San Francisco Police Department station, and we're having a hunger strike. This is day six. Basically, we come to the conclusion that, like we said, we exhausted every avenue. The hunger strike seems to be gaining more momentum every single day, and it's necessary because the city is doing its best to ignore the issues surrounding police brutality, the misuse of police tactics, police violence, and of course we're out here fighting for justice for our brother Mario Woods. I'm encouraged by the energy of the men and the women, young folks who have come out here and they're trying to take a stand for Mario and for others to make sure that this stuff stops. As like this, the hashtag that we have here, it stops today. Like it has to stop. And if we do not do anything, it will continue. Excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, pardon me. So, good evening. I'm uh, Captain Perea from Mission Station. Tonight is our tonight is our community meeting. It's from six o'clock to seven o'clock. Okay. The room that we have has a capacity for the fire department of 49 people. So we are going to count the number of people that come in. If you'd like to come into the meeting, you can line up against this uh, these barricades here. Once we meet the capacity, we will keep track of who exits. If somebody exits then another person come in. If three people exit, then three more people can come in. Okay? Thank you very much. So if you'd like to line up, it's it's to the right here. Okay, okay? mic check. The, the hunger strikers have asked no one to go in until they're back up in front and they get in. So please wait. Okay, good evening. I'm Captain Perea. I'm the commanding officer here at Mission Station. This is our community meeting that we have the last Tuesday of every month. It's 6 o'clock and we go to 7. So, um, the way that these are normally run is we give information about things that are going on in the district and then we save the majority of the time for questions. So, this month, most recently, we had a uh, community resource fair at Garfield Park. That was Captain Barrett, April 27. We have a request as a community. You cannot fit everyone that's outside into this room. There are a number of people standing outside that should be in this room to listen to this meeting to have a conversation with you. Because that's the case, our demand is that you host this meeting outside with the community. We have a megaphone for you, but you are more than welcome to come speak with us out there and we can have a conversation. Will that request be met? 
Okay, questions are, are, are at the This end. is not a question, this is a demand. Okay. Well, we'll save demands for the end, too. Great. <laughs> I'd like everyone to stand up, and we're about to fire okay. Chief Sir. So, what do we want? Fire Chief Sir! Fire Chief Sir! Fire Chief Sir! Fire Chief Sir! Everyone's attention. The purpose, the, purpose of this, come outside with the purpose of this meeting is to address concerns from the community. The community needs to hear you, and that's why you need to go outside. Yes, you do. No, I do not. Yes, you do. You're violating your civil rights. Oh, Excel. They're not coming in. Really? Is, are you recording this? So you're preventing the community from coming into a public space? Yes, I am. For what reason? I don't have to give you a reason. You don't have to give me a reason. Correct. So when you killed and shoot black and brown people, what reason did you have then? You don't have to have a reason then either? The community, majority of the community is outside, which cannot be let inside. So all we did was demand and request that the meeting be held outside instead of in this small room where there's other people who need to be in that room. So instead of meeting our demands, he storms out of the room and decides to not have his mandatory meeting. Brother, I'm sorry you have to wear that badge and also do what you do. It's disappointing, because I know you want to stand with us. Oh, you don't want to stand with us. You're complacent to the fact that black and brown people are getting killed. They're violating our constitutional rights to peacefully assemble in a public space. We're fighting because we want Chief Sir to resign and or be fired. And the reason we want that is because there's blood on his hands. There's been injustices in this city, black and brown people getting killed indiscriminately with immunity. And we're tired of it. And I'm on day seven on a hunger strike, and they got my blood pressure through the roof. So I hope you see this. I hope you share. Because I will stay out here as long as it takes. Amilcar Perez Lopez, Alex Nieto, Mario Woods, Luis Congora.
Everybody gets to see somebody that they know be killed. That was painful. It was extremely painful. I'm saying like watching somebody that you've had conversation with, somebody that you've hoped and you've prayed for for something better, somebody that you knew where they came from and you knew what they had to conquer in order to try to do something different, and then you see them get gunned down in the street for no reason whatsoever. It was so painful, man. And like, you don't you don't recover from stuff like that. And uh, welcome back. So this was some video footage that was taken outside the mission police station. And again, there are folks there who are hunger on a hunger strike uh, to demand that police chief Greg Sir resign or be fired. You can also contact the mayor's office. You can tweet. He, I've tried calling the number. No one answers. Um, so I think tweeting is another way you can do that. It's at Mayor Ed Lee. Um, so folks can uh, contact the mayor that way. And again, I will just confirm the uh, address. Uh, it's yes, it's Twitter is at Mayor Ed Lee, uh, M-A-Y-O-R-E-D-L-E-E, uh, demand that Chief Sir be fired. If he's listening, that would be if Ed Lee is listening and wants to listen to the people and realize that the majority of the people would like this police chief fired, uh, that would be great for him to act on that. I'm not holding my breath. Um, but more pressure definitely needs to be put on the folks uh, in positions of power who do have uh, some sway. So this goes to, um, this is connected, of course. Uh, this is from uh, Countercurrent News, and this article came out, uh, this was earlier in the year, and this is a police union targets whistleblower cop who exposed racism in department, and this is from February. A whistleblower in the police San Francisco Police Department has been targeted by her police union for publicly calling out the department for what she describes as a pattern of racism. She says now she fears for her safety from other cops while on patrol. Sergeant uh, Yolanda Williams was one of the, was one of two African American police officers who were mentioned by name in a series of racist text messages that were sent by a group of fellow police officers. Those text messages emerged last year in court filings related to departmental racism. Williams is one of the only police officers to ever participate in the Blue Ribbon Panel on Police Bias. That panel was formed by District Attorney George Gascon after a number of incidents with the San Francisco Police Department proved they had a serious problem with racism on their force. Williams has also headed an organization called Officers for Justice, which seeks, which seeks to out dirty cops and those with overt biases that prevent them from impartially doing their jobs. But Williams says these activities have made her the target of other officers and the San Francisco Police Officers Association. The SFPO claims there is no systemic or systemic bias among police ranks. They've even called out Williams for claiming otherwise, pointing to her by name. On January 20th, the SFPO wrote a letter that was directly addressed to Williams, which they sent to all officers who are members of the union. 
President William, um, President Martin Halloran said in the letter, don't like some of the comments William had made in front of Gascon's blue ribbon panel. The POA is disturbed by some of your comments and accusations. For example, you claim that racism is widespread within our department, the letter stated. The POA disagrees. While a handful of officers engaged in racist and homophobic text messaging, they were and were condemned for doing so by the POA and by me personally, there is no evidence that racism is widespread throughout the department. On January 14th, Williams had testified that she had witnessed firsthand fellow officers using racial bias in their policing. She had said this is a widespread problem and not an isolated incident. I am black and I will never be blue enough, she told the panel. I will never be able to prove to them that I deserve to wear the same uniform that they do. Williams said that since the letter targeting her, she has concerns that fellow officers will at the very least not support her if her life is in jeopardy. It leaves me with a a sense of uneasiness to the point that I am wondering how safe of an environment I might be in and if, when I call for backup, how fast that backup will come. Williams says that the letter by the police union was a personal attack against me and my constitutional rights of freedom of speech. It sends a clear message that when you go against what they believe in what they believe in, you are then considered an outsider, an outcast, and they attempt to slander your name. So this was uh, written by uh, M. David and S. Wooden, and you can find this at uh, countercurrentnews.com, and this was also came out before there was more uh, racist and homophobic text messages that were revealed. Um, so clearly she's telling the truth, and the the folks, uh, a lot of the police, want, they will not admit that there is systemic racism within the force. Oh. So, oh. well, that's, I have nothing to add to that. That's just really shitty. Um, I applaud her for, for speaking up, though. And if more cops were to speak up about uh, dirty cops, then uh, a lot of us would have more faith in, in them. Um, although there's many folks who feel we could exist just fine without a without a police force and entirely in the idea that communities can police themselves and communities know each other um so that's that's an option uh moving along how do i make a segue the, the next few stories are they're going to be on the, the depressing end there's a positive i'll do i'll do something that's a little bit more positive so then we can go into the other ones how about that before we talk about what's happening in oklahoma which is just like uh um something positive and often i found i think within the last year i found that the po- the things that are positive is just when bad things don't happen when bad things that could happen end up being stopped or something that's problematic that has happened ends up being undone so it's like the story with the the folks in oregon who have been arrested for marijuana now they are being compensated for the time that they were sent to prison if they hadn't been sent to jail in the first place then, I mean, that's obviously what would have been the best situation. And the, the best that things that we can do is to somehow uh, stop these really backwards th- actions from happening and prevent further backwards actions from happening. And this is exactly what this is about, this next story. And this comes from the Charlotte Observer. At South Carolina transgender bill, uh, <laughs> South Carolina transgender bathroom bill dead. And this was, uh, this came out uh, yesterday, Thursday, April 28th. Um, so the, the, the highlights, uh, bill introduced after North Carolina proposal passed is dead for the year. Um, but, ugh, geez. But sponsor Senator Lee Bright, Republican from Spartanburg, uh, we'll try to ban state aid to local governments that pass pro-transgender bathroom laws. Okay, with pro-transgender anything, it's pretty much just giving us the right to exist and the right to move about freely, identify as we identify, 
and be safe in the world. Uh, the idea that you would label as pro-transgender, it should be just like pro-human, pro-human rights. It's not this idea. The same folks go with this uh, idea about how gay rights is like somehow people asking for special privileges when it's really just asking for equal rights. There's nothing, there's nothing special about it. It's just asking for equal respect the way they frame these things. And also, I also just uh, doubt anyone who... Ha Granted, there's a lot of mis miseducation out there, certainly. But for the folks who put these bills forward, I'm sure they're hiding something because you don't go after people that you know nothing about uh, unless you yourself. It's like you're, you're pointing the figure at someone because you don't yourself want to be discovered. Like this Dennis Hastert guy. He was not a good dude. And all the meanwhile, he was molesting kids. So... For the folks in positions of power who are out pointing fingers and wanting to deny other people rights, uh, I would I would take a look at this Senator Lee Bright, who's apparently not that bright. Okay, next, roads education bills make Sunday's crossover deadline. All right, that's that's great. All right, and this was written by Toby Talbot. Oh, no, that was a photo, Toby Talbot from the AP. And then the article is written by Jamie Self. That's a cool name. All right, Columbia, a bill to prevent transgender men and women from using the bathroom or locker rooms of their choice is dead for the year. Sponsored by Senator Lee Bright, Republican from Spartanburg, the legislation will miss Sunday's crossover deadline for bills to pass from one legislative chamber to the other. Bills that do not have that deadline have almost no chance of passing this year. Lawmakers head home for the weekend after Thursday session, and as of Wednesday, Bright only had four of the nine votes needed to bring his bill directly to the Senate floor for a vote. With his bill certain to fail, Bright was planning another way to advance his agenda Wednesday. When the state budget comes up for debate next week, Bright said he will try to add a proposal to ban state aid to local governments that pass laws requiring businesses to allow transgender people to use the bathrooms of their choice. Local governments that require that are telling businesses how to run their restrooms, he said. Bright said that he had high hopes for his no-aid proposal, that his no-aid, uh, and I'm also saying no-brain, like no-brain involved, no-thought involved, proposal will pass. Uh, uh, we'd rather have the full bill, but we'll take what we can get. He's definitely hiding something. Go after this jerk. It's the best I can come up with. Bright introduced his bill after North Carolina adopted its controversial transgender bathroom law. In two days of hearings, supporters of the proposal were outnumbered by opponents, including transgender high school students and their parents who said the bill could place transgender students in harm's way by outing them to other students, requiring them to use the bathrooms of their biological birth sex in instead of the gender with which they identify. Even if Bright's bill were to reach the Senate floor, Democrats have vowed to block it. Well, good thing for them. Good. That, that, that sounded sarcastic, but it wasn't meant to be. Uh, I was actually surprised. Like, good. Uh, Gov Republican Governor Nikki Haley also said that the bill was unnecessary.